The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. I was driving home yesterday evening from Mount Tambourine with serious food regret. Uh, my favourite meal to eat is tortilla stacks. Anyone else like tortilla stacks? Look, if I could live anywhere in the world, I think Mexico would be it. But I was living with food regret because I had decided to stay up at a conference for a little bit longer than I had intended. I texted my wife and I said, we're just going to get chips from the local chip shop and I'm going to go back and listen to the evening speaker. She replied and said, okay, and then a photo of the tortilla stack in the oven. Serious food regret. I read a food critic from the Sydney Morning Herald who described food regret like this. I get envy when I realise I've ordered the wrong thing or the wrong item and it's just too late to change. It's a minor qualm in the great scheme of things, but if you've never suffered from food regret, then you've never really felt pain. Now, (laughs) it does feel... uh, like a silly thing to say when we've just been praying for persecuted Christians, doesn't it? It's a Western thing to describe food regret. But here in this passage, Jesus introduces the disciples to a form of food regret. Look down with me. What does he say in verse 32? He said to them, to the disciples, I have food to eat that you do not know about. He's trying to help the disciples to see that they should be regretting something that they actually do not even know about. Now, I presume that last week you preached and went through the passage with the woman at the well. Now, it's fascinating because he had, Jesus had just introduced this woman to the reality that streams of living water flow from him. He'd been inviting and calling this woman to find her soul satisfied in him. But here we go from water to food. But Jesus is perhaps trying to help his disciples to understand that when we come to Jesus, we don't just come and put our trust in him. We've got to go on and do something. You see, I suspect that there are many Christians today, and I know this to be true because I see it in my own church family. They think, come and put your trust in Jesus and then you'll be satisfied full stop. Just come, put your trust in Jesus, go and live life without any changes, and you'll somehow be satisfied. I think what Jesus is doing in this passage is trying to help his disciples to see what real satisfaction in the Christian life looks like. And it's not just some kind of insincere belief in Jesus. It's a belief that results in a deep desire to please and honour our Father in heaven. I'm just going to be very honest that there is so many times, even when I look back over my life, and I think, I love and trust Jesus. Why am I not satisfied? And I think the response is here in this passage, because, Josh, there hasn't been a deep and abiding desire to do your Father's will. You know, as you've been working through John's gospel, I think something that you will have already seen is that John is not just leading us towards any kind of belief in Jesus, but a sincere 
belief that results in deep change in our lives. So what are we going to do this morning? Well, we're going to simply walk through this story and it begins with what I'd call heart-revealing ignorance. Read verse 27 with me. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? See, if you read the context, the disciples had gone into the town. They'd been on a long journey with Jesus. They had gone to get food and water. They're like any other human being. It reveals something of the humanity of Jesus. He needed food and water to drink. And they come back to the well. They see Jesus talking with a woman. And what is the word to describe? They marveled. Or if you've got the NIV, they were surprised. Why? Ask yourself this question. Why were they amazed that Jesus was talking with a woman? Well, humanly speaking, I reckon there's many of reasons. First, She was a woman. Second, she was a Samaritan. Third, she was a social outcast because she had been married many, many times. And Jesus had revealed that she wasn't even married to the man that she was currently with. The disciples are thinking there's many, many reasons why we should be surprised right now. And notice that their shock, their amazement, you might say, was so great that they didn't even think to ask. Let's go back to verse 27. John makes a particular point of reminding us that no one said to Jesus, why do you seek? You think that's what a good disciple would do, right? We're a bit amazed. What are you doing, Jesus? They didn't even think to ask him, what are you doing? Why are you talking with her? No one thought to ask that question. See, if they had suspended their amazement just for a moment, they would have discovered that this woman had been engaged with Jesus in a life-altering, grace-filled moment with the Son of God. Matthew Henry goes straight to the heart of the matter and he said, they, the disciples, wondered why he should condescend to talk with such a poor contemptible woman, forgetting what despicable men they were themselves when Christ first called them to fellowship with himself. Their amazement reveals their utter ignorance. I I hope you remember the prologue where we're told, John tells us very, very clearly, in him Jesus was life And that light was the light of all mankind. The light shines in what? Darkness. And the darkness had not overcome it. Jesus wasn't a light that came to shine within a world that was already bright. He came to a dark, dark world. Or John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, including this Samaritan woman, 
would not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We need to understand and we need to hear it again and again and again that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which you and I are one. Why is it that we are surprised that Jesus wants to save other sinners? Just recently at Eastside, we ran an Explaining Christianity course, and I'm surprised over and over and over again of who it is that God in his infinite grace decides to save. Why? I look at people and I confess to my shame that I can look at them and go, she whiz. Surely, surely Jesus is not for them. You see, these disciples would not have given this woman a second thought if they met her at the well. This is what their ignorance is revealing. But yet Jesus gave her not just a hello, a good morning, he gave her his time, and his attention. And he graciously helped her to see that her sole satisfaction would be found in him. And I I wonder this morning who you and I would be unlikely to give our time and attention to. Who, Who would we not give our time and attention to that Jesus would be standing and sharing the good news with? Who are the people at the school gate that you just walk straight on by? Or the people in your workplace that you just think, man, I really don't want them to enter the kingdom of God because I couldn't bear the thought of spending eternity with them. You know who I'm talking about. Honestly, I think in this world, this very rage-filled world at the moment where Christians feel boxed around, we can be so guilty of thinking, gee, I'd be glad if those people never entered the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is exposing our prejudice, isn't he? He's exposing how limited we think the grace of God really is. And it's amazing because you look in verse 28 at what the woman does. Like they have insulted her. They're having a conversation about her in front of her. That's just the definition of rude, right? But then there's this mic drop moment. Instead of engaging with them or arguing with them, we're told, verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then the Samaritans went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. I think in this moment she's, she's highlighting and exposing the heart of the disciple. She's now doing the very thing that they should have been doing. She's heard something of the Lord Jesus. We don't actually know. I, I don't think at this point she's actually put her trust in Jesus completely. But she's gone, there is something incredible about this man. Could he be the Christ? And she goes back to her whole community 
to meet Jesus, it's an astounding picture. Just think, at the beginning of the day, she was a a social outcast who couldn't find anyone in her community to go to a well with her. By the end of the day, she's being engaged in the work of the Son of God. You know, this is what Jesus does. He takes nobodies and makes them somebodies by engaging them in the work of God. I was having a conversation with someone at a conference yesterday who had met a woman from Eastside, and she was marvelling at the evangelistic powerhouse that this woman has become. What this lady didn't know, and I was able to tell her, was the life that this woman used to live. It is an incredible transformation, and that is what God longs to do. That he would take people who are nobodies and that he would make them somebodies in the work of God. The disciples' utter amazement has revealed their ignorance, but Jesus, seeing the teaching moment, goes on. Verse 31, Jesus reminds them that there is a different food that brings real satisfaction. Verse 31, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. You know, this kind of reminds me of like road tripping with the family. You know, you've got kids and they're in the back of the car. I want something to eat, right? But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples are still operating on such a physical and temporal plane. Verse 33, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Like, what's their priority? Come on, what's their priority? It's food. All they can care about is that their belly is filled. They're so physically and temporally bound. And all through John's Gospel, you see this interplay. You saw it with the woman at the well. Jesus talking about water and she's thinking of a deep well where water would just flow like a tap. She didn't get it. Now the disciples are not getting it. I think we should be fair on the disciples. Gathering food and water back in their day was a really hard job. They couldn't just drop in to 7-Eleven if Woolies was closed and if it wasn't 7-Eleven time, you'd go to Woolies, Coles or Aldi. There wasn't 7-Eleven servos where you could pull in and get a pie on the way home with your favourite Slurpee flavour. But this is revealing that as humans, our priorities are primarily driven by the physical and the temporal, right? Is that just me? Our priorities are driven by the physical and the temporal, not the spiritual world. We are so much more concerned about what we need right now than what's important to our Father in heaven. It's funny, even as I was writing this sermon, I reckon I had about five coffees. I would have eaten many, many snacks in the cupboard, probably gone to Macca's if I could have. And even still, the disciples, as Jesus is trying to invite them into what is really going on, they're sitting there thinking, maybe someone else has dropped off a food pack for him. 
And yet what Jesus is saying to them, I might be physically hungry. I'm sure Jesus was physically hungry, and yet he's saying, I am absolutely content and satisfied in this moment. Some of the men in the room are thinking, how is that possible? He's just walked a long journey. The disciples have just gone to get food and water, and Jesus is like, I am absolutely content in this moment. What does he say to them? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Wake up, disciples. I've just been sharing about streams of living water to a woman who is living in darkness and you come back and you're not even concerned to understand what is going on. I might be hungry, I might be thirsty, but this is the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus is reminding us this morning that we need to push back on our physical needs for the sake of doing our Father's will. And you know, this is ultimately an object of faith. Because when we do our Father's will, who do we trust has given us physical needs and desires? Someone yell it out to me. God. Does he know we have physical needs? Does he know that we have desires? I I can remember my dad saying to me just before I married my wife, he said, Make it your desire to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what will God the Father look after? Everything else. You see, this is not Jesus kind of saying, look, you know, we should all just starve and everyone's going to die if they do their fathers. Well, no, this is an object of faith. Do I believe that when I step out, take a small step to prioritize the will of my Father in heaven, that he can look after all of my other needs. You see, when we prioritize our physical and temporal needs overdoing the will of our Father, you know you are being a functional atheist or pagan. God is either small and no good or he does not exist at all. Is that right? If we're not prepared to do the will of our Father in heaven, that is what we are declaring. Let me read it again from Matthew's Gospel. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Those words roll off so easily, right? I find that so hard. I'd say by personality, I can be a worrier. I can worry about absolutely everything. Maybe you're like me this morning. And and the invitation this morning is this. Come back and do the will of your Father in heaven and trust that he can look after absolutely everything else. 
And it's amazing because Jesus is not just saying, hey, do this as an object of faith. He's saying to his disciples, this is where you will be satisfied. Like there are so, so many Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians who are dissatisfied because they do not believe that satisfaction comes from doing the will of their Father in heaven. I get such great joy when you see someone who's been sitting in the pews for years and years and years and they go, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm going to lead a discipleship group. And then they come back three months later and they're like, gee, it was hard work, but I'm absolutely loving what God is doing in the lives of those that I'm ministering to. Or you see someone who has prayed and prayed and prayed for a family member, a, a colleague, a neighbour, and they come along and they do a course like explaining Christianity or Christianity Explored, and they're like, they put their trust in Jesus. It's addictive in the best kind of way to actually doing something meaningful with your life. I, I, I can still, and I'll, I don't think I'll forget this conversation, I remember a lady coming up to me and she said to me, Josh, I, I had no idea that other than trusting Jesus and waiting for glory, that there was that much God wanted me to be doing now. You know, God isn't just big enough to save you from your sin, he is. He's big enough to stand you up on your feet and say, you are my child. You're now part of the family of God and this side of eternity. I've got so, so, so much exciting stuff for you to do in my kingdom. And that's true whether you're a teenager this morning or whether you've been retired for 15 years. Until the day that Christ calls us home, well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, he has got good works prepared in advance for us to do. I, I just wonder as a point of application right now, though, whether, whether you can put your finger on the physical or temporal thing in your life right now that is most likely to distract you from doing the will of God. So for the disciples, clearly food was their thing. I could be wrong, but I don't reckon food is the issue for us right now. But money? Is it relational issues? Is it your investments? Is it your work? Is it your career? What, what is it? What is the thing that is most likely to stop you right now from engaging in the work of your Father in heaven? Can you name that thing? I just recently watched a documentary on Johnny Manziel. Okay? I don't follow American football. I think it's the weirdest sport in the world. But Johnny Manziel was the first freshman, I take that means a first year into college dude, to win the Heisman Trophy, which is the best college footballer, right? He had huge tickets on him. He was tipped to go and be a quarterback that would earn millions and millions and millions of dollars 
in the NFL when he got out of college football. He got a contract, he was earning millions of dollars, but there's this line in this documentary where they're, they're talking to Johnny, and he says, at this point in my career, I had everything I could ever have wanted. All the money in the world, all the physical possessions in the world that his heart could ever desire. He had all of the fame and fortune. But there's like this line, it, it's haunting, right? But I had absolutely nothing. And yet I wonder if in this world, it's one of the works of the evil one that Christians standing right before them would have the offer of everything, doing the will of their Father in heaven. Yet the evil one would convince us not to do his work. And to continue on kind of in this existence of knowing that I love and trust Jesus and I'm going to be in glory one day, but this side of eternity, I'm just going to kind of keep chewing on the dissatisfaction of a world that means nothing. Like it's, a, it's a win for the evil one, right? When the banquet of the will of our Father in heaven stands right before us. And Jesus gets pretty direct. He calls them to open their eyes. Just read from verse 34. Jesus has said to them, as we've just seen, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish these works. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? And then he's, look! You could say, Jesus is saying, wake up! It's a strong word that Jesus is bringing. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. I reckon at this point probably you had the Samaritans coming back from the town on the horizon. Okay? It makes maybe a nice movie scene, right? The woman's gone off, she's called them to come back and on the horizon Jesus is saying, look, the fields are white for harvest. As city slickers, I don't think we get harvest time. I grew up in Biloela, a beautiful country town, and harvest time was the most exciting time. At the church I went to, we even had Harvest Sunday once a year where we would celebrate the provision of God. If it was a good harvest time, the whole town was absolutely pumping. If it was a bad harvest time, it would be the opposite. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, my greatest joy, my greatest joy is to be involved in the work for which my Father sent me to do. I've been on a long walk. Yes, I'm physically hungry. I'm hungry and I'm thirsty, but right now I am content because this is the very reason for which the Father sent me. And he's calling them, lift your eyes up. Lift your eyes up and see that the fields are ripe for harvest. Are your eyes up this morning to what your Father in heaven is doing in this world? 
Or are you, your eyes down, so consumed by the mundane and the temporary things of this world? Like the call is very clear. Lift your eyes up to all that your Father is doing. And Jesus uses the agricultural analogy. You're already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. It's a very simple analogy. If you want to reap something, what do you have to first do? Plant. You don't just walk out into the fields and go, oh, there's nothing to reap today. I'll come back next week. No, farmers know that if they sow a few months later, there is going to be a time of reaping. And Jesus is borrowing from a prophetic picture. In Amos 9, the prophet says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grains. New wine will drip from the mountain and flow from all the hills. Amos was looking forward to a time in salvation history which would be a time of restoration for God's people. A time when God's spirit would be poured out, when the kingdom would be expanded, and when all who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. And I think what Jesus is doing is saying, this is the time. Lift up your eyes and see what my Father in heaven is doing in this world. You know, you and I live in an incredible moment in salvation history. I I think Christians talk far too negatively. We're far too impacted by the 24-hour news cycle that dictates the way that we think Jesus would be saying to us, this is the time of restoration. I have poured out my spirit upon my people in a special way. So that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth, and as Jesus is going to say a little later in John's gospel, I will not lose any that the Father has given me. Lift your eyes up. Don't be so negative. Don't don't for a moment allow your imagination of what God might do in this world to be dictated by what you're seeing on the news. I've often said to my wife, I just wish at the end of every news bulletin I watched, there was just this five-minute segment that went, but reminder, Jesus is king, and Jesus' spirit, the spirit of the Lord Jesus, has been poured out upon you. And you know, it, it doesn't matter what goes on in this world when it comes to what our political leaders do, they will always bow to the work that the Father longs to do in this world through his Son, the Lord Jesus, and his people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I was rebuked significantly recently. We were running a course that we run called Explaining Christianity, and look, I've just got to be honest, my heart was flat. I wasn't that expectant around what God might do. Two weeks before the course, there was a couple of people who had signed up And in my heart, I'm thinking it's going to be small. Not much is going to happen. And and it's pride, right? There's not much that I can do, God. And God's like, that's right, Josh. 
In the end, we had 15 guests sign up, and for the first two weeks, more people came along than had signed up. And on the, the very second night, there was a girl who turned up who didn't come to the first week, and at the end of the, the, the second night, she just heard a half an hour talk, she turned to a girl who is on our team, our evangelism team, and she just goes, I want to become a Christian. And right that night, after Grace tried to push back against her, tried to clarify that she really understood the gospel, that girl put her trust in Jesus. And then the week after that, we had this young guy turn up, and again, it was the weirdest conversation I've ever had. He said, I'm here because I do UFC fighting, or whatever you call that. And he said, I've heard of an American fighter who quotes the Apostle Paul, so I thought, I'd better come along and hear about Jesus. And like all, all throughout this course, it was like God was saying to me, Josh, do you not see? Do you not understand that it is not about you, but is it, about, it is about the work that my Father is doing in this world? Will you not lift up your eyes? And will you not see that now is the time of harvest? Well, where does ongoing satisfaction in the Christian life come from? Well, I want to say that it comes from just being completely amazed and surprised at the work that our Father keeps on doing. Blown away that God, in His grace, through His Son, the Lord Jesus, would just keep doing a life-transforming work in people like you and me and many others that we simply do not expect that it would be possible. I think that this might be the providence of God because I plan to finish telling a story about a friend of mine who serves as a missionary to people from one of those countries that we were praying for this morning. I'm not technically allowed to mention the country if you're smart, it's one of those three countries. This friend of mine has given up absolutely everything, right? Now, when I mean everything, he grew up in a very, very wealthy family in Launceston. He will inherit a heck of a lot of money one day. And he lived a very, very godless life. Walked away from the faith that he was brought up in but then God came down on him like a ton of bricks. And this friend of mine is the kind of guy that whatever he does, he does it at 110 kilometers an hour, right? So he's like, if I'm going to be godless, I'll do it with free abandon. And then when he met the risen Lord Jesus, like, well, I've just got to go and serve the Lord with all of my heart. And God has called him to serve people from one of the most dangerous countries in the world. And he's now got six kids. And every time I get the pleasure of catching up with my friend, I sit there and I think, why are you so happy? Okay, like, that's, that's still what resonates in my heart. That's, that's the, the inner sin at work within me. Why are you so happy and so content? And then every time I catch up with him, I, I kind of think, okay, surely you've done enough now. Like, just, you know... Just keep doing the work that God's called you to do right there. But it's like, no, 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 there, there's more. And now we're going to go and do this. And now we're going to go and do that. And as you're talking to this guy, it's like, I, I'm convinced that I don't think he could be any more happy if he was doing anything else in this world. 
You could give him all the money in the world, you could give him whatever career in the world, he would not be any more happy than doing what you and I would look at and say it's one of the most dangerous things you could possibly do with a wife and six kids. But yet he is deeply, deeply satisfied. Now, you know, maybe for someone here this morning, God wants you to go to some country like that. And if that's what God's calling you to do, that is where you will be satisfied. But maybe the invitation this morning is that you would stop being a pew sitter here at Life Centre Caloundra and you would go to Jimmy, give him a break when he comes back from his holiday, don't run at him all at once. But Jimmy, what can I get on board with here? Like, How can I get more a part of what God is doing through the work of your church family here? Or maybe the invitation to you this morning is this, start praying for your work colleagues. Start seeing the mums and dads that you walk past in through the school gates as people who desperately need the Lord Jesus. Or, or maybe the invitation this morning is this, start believing that God can do so much more as we lift our eyes to all that he longs to do in this world. Let's bow our heads and pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.